Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains references to suicide. If this content does affect you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Also, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that this episode contains references to and the names of deceased persons. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. Today on Crime Insider's Detectives, an old-school copper who's been involved in the worst of the worst. Every day for two weeks, every day up in the helicopter, every day beating the bush, knowing full well that he was armed in there and we were going in to try and flush him out. Alan Leake spent his entire career in the New South Wales Police. He started early at just 21, and moved through the force quickly, taking up a position as a detective in Sydney early in his career. It was there that murder investigations and homicide became a central part of Alan's life. You'll hear it from him, but this was a torrid time in the Sydney criminal sector, especially considering he was in Cambramatta, an infamous area of the city. Later, Alan took on senior roles, and it was there where the work began to affect him and take a toll. We'll go back to his time in Sydney, though, to pick up the conversation. I've just asked him to take us through a notorious double murder in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. Could you walk us through through that case? It's going back a year or two. Yeah, well, I've got fairly vivid memories of that, but... um... It, uh, it, it was a man who Neville Constable, his name was, and he uh, was getting ready to go to work. He worked on the railways and he was getting ready to go to work, putting his boots on actually, and a, a young neighbour walked in with a rifle and shot him in front of his wife. He then turned and shot, his, shot the wife um, and then he walked up to her. I think he shot her in the heart and walked up to her and then shot her in the head to make sure she was dead. Then he went over to the husband and hacked at him with a machete to kill him. And the daughter, the eldest daughter was in the house. She was a young teenager and uh, she jumped out of a window and uh, he didn't seem to have a lot of interest in uh, uh, touching her, but he, uh, she jumped out anyway. He'd uh, got out of the house and shot the water tank, shot holes in the water tank, killed the goat, killed the dog, and then took to the bush. We were called up and we spoke to the eldest daughter and then I got her and we got the two younger girls off the school bus brought them back to the house, the, the house, part of the house that we could go into, sat them down in a bedroom and I sat down with them and told them that their parents were, were killed. And um, the youngest one asked whether the dog had been hurt. And, uh, you know, it's innocence. Um, they don't sort of get the full uh, 
impact, I suppose, and ask those sorts of questions. But, uh, yeah, it stayed with me because it was a very, very difficult thing to do. And um, um, they had family that were able to comfort them uh, elsewhere, and I didn't see them again, in fact. But um, And the young fellow that had caused the problem in the first place uh, was in the bush. We went in every day for two weeks, every day up in the helicopter, every day beating the bush, knowing full well that he was armed in there and we were going, going in to try and flush him out. And... Uh, at some stage, we had to give it up, and uh, I knew from information I had that he thought that the way, if you ever were searched for by the police, you would outlast them, stay in there until they give up, and we, we had we had to give up, you know, it's, I think it was 16 days, 15 days, and uh, eventually, uh, one of his relatives found his body uh, laying across a car, he shot himself, and we were able to have the uh, blowfly infestation of the body uh, brought up to fruition and so that we could uh, identify exactly when he died uh, from the two infestations of maggots in the body were able to tell us that uh, he died on a particular day, which, the, which was the day after we'd given up the search. He'd obviously thought we weren't going to give it up, so and he'd killed himself. So uh, that brought that to a crashing end. But um, yeah, it was a, a nasty, nasty business. He was the neighbour of the husband and wife that he that he murdered. What was the motive? Was that ever established? No. The best we could do was that we knew that he he's obviously disturbed, but he also there was a possibility of, of drug uh, uh, issues. But he had gone to uh, a bathroom cabinet and taken every tablet that was in there. Why I don't know, but uh, you know he was just. Disturbed, obviously, but there was no there was no incident that led to it. Yeah, and to put I guess it into context, Bell at, at the time probably still to this day is a it's you could almost describe it as a as a regional sort of a, a very a small area outlying Sydney. It's 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 as the crow flies. It's a probably an hour and a half, almost a two hour drive out of Sydney up yeah, to Bell. Yeah, so ha- um, it's a hamlet. It's on Bell's Line of Road, is it? Yeah, is it, but yeah, this yeah, was yeah. off that a bit, and it was right. uh, there were you know half a dozen houses. It made it very. We believed that he was coming up to his uh, grandmother's place overnight and being fed, but we couldn't sit off the place because it was just so open. You know, there was no no way we could uh, do normal observations. So uh, mm. um, yeah, it was a difficult terrain, and I mean, and the and the bush was as rough as, and uh, and it was it was bitterly cold, but it taught me that we had. Uh, flies up in that area, blowflies up in that area that lived on carrion all through winter, uh, which was interesting. And that's, that's what led us to get to an entomologist and, and have them bred up and work out work out when he was ki- when he actually killed himself. But um, yeah, it was uh, just in case people are wondering why there were blowflies around in the cold weather, but they, they do exist there. <laughs> and they were able to be as accurate as saying that, that he took his life at, on this day at this time, roughly, and, and you're able to conclude from that that was the day after. I think you said 16 days that the police devoted sort of resources and everything to it. But you, as you say, you can't just keep doing that forever and ever. Well, that's right. Um, and, and I knew that uh, the, the, the gestation period, if, they, if that's the right term for an insect, I'm not sure, but yeah. the, uh, the, uh, they knew that they, they, they hatched at that particular time. And then you backdate that by the number of days that it takes. And then there were two infestations. So you go back further with the first in, in, infestation. The body was in very good condition too because it was so cold. And the young girls involved, so three sisters? Yes. One at home at the time, and and she flees from the house. She escapes from him. 
uh, and two littler ones that um, that you got off the school bus coming home from primary school. How old were these? How old were these kids? Oh, I think one was uh, seven, one maybe nine, from memory. Yeah, and then the older one, a young teenager, yeah, young, youngish, very young teenager. Mm, yeah. mm. Do, do you ever? Do you? I mean, you don't have contact, obviously, with with uh, as you move through the police with um, victims of these terrible crimes. Very rare for that to occur. There must be a part of your wonders, you know, how those girls ended up and where they. Yeah, I, I. I I did hear things from time to time. Uh, they went to other family, of course, and out of the, my area, mm. and I'd hear things. Um, it's not always the case that you lose immediate contact. Um, I had another homicide that I was doing, a child that was uh, killed. Yes. And that family I, I had very close connection with uh, over quite a quite a long time, and, and it, it took nine months to, to get any uh, any result from the investigations. It was a very, very difficult job. But we got someone and uh, charged him, and um, he got a life sentence. The, uh, there are others that were never dealt with because we didn't, we lacked the evidence. But that was nine months after the incident. Uh, that was in nineteen eighty seven, and naturally, you're in touch with the family all the time. You're always visiting, you're always seeing them, and uh, supporting. And uh, with major, you probably know this, in, in with major investigations, high profile investigations, you get every rat bag on earth comes out of the woodwork and, and makes allegations, all sorts of dreadful allegations about all sorts of things, including the family. So they needed support there as well because they were, they were, I suppose, they're trolls in today's uh, internet, you know. But um, so th that went on for a long while. And then after the trial, they moved away from the house, of course, and uh, and I moved on to other, other positions. I think it was probably two years later I'd, uh, I'd, I was promoted rapidly to uh, to commission rank uh, went back into uniform as a as a commissioned officer Alan you get you get to that rank um, there's a percentage of that work where it's uh, you liaising between the department uh, the area that you're commanding and the media of course and uh, high profile cases such as the um, the political assassination goodness me there would have been no shortage of uh, of, of of media um, obligations both you know television radio print media what's what's that like what, what what's it like to be sort of almost i guess suddenly cast into the limelight as a as a police officer you know 5 minutes ago you're a constable now here you are you've got the media in front of you does that make the job harder does it can you use the media to your advantage how does that work no, I was a bit of a tart. I, I yeah. sucked it up. <laughs> you didn't mind it. <laughs> but, but, no, well, I'd done, I'd, I'd done quite a lot of it, actually, uh, because of the cases I've been involved in. But previously, as a detective sergeant, I was in charge of a homicide investigation at Blacktown of a, a little girl that was murdered, five-year-old girl, and uh, that was a very, very difficult case. We just couldn't get any traction. And um, I went on television, the, the, the morning television shows, the, uh, I can't remember what they're called at the day, but I went on to those often. And all of the time that I did that, I was asking the community to help us without actually saying that. I was saying, somebody knows, somebody out there knows what's happening. And that came to pass. We got it. And uh, and that's a, another story in itself because it was, it was quite Quite interesting how it happened, but the uh, I, I, I fronted every chance I got. Um, I had a, ch a child; my youngest child was the same age as that little girl that was killed. It was uh, it was a very difficult job to do, but I uh, I got out and did it. I did it. I did a lot of television. I did a lot of papers. I did a lot of radio, and I uh, I got up and I faced the meter every opportunity I got. I understood what they needed, 
and they understood what I needed, and we worked very well together. Same at, the, at Blacktown with the murder investigation I was doing there. I worked with the media, and I knew what they had. They had deadlines. They had to feed their machines and whatever, and, and I, I needed to get out the word out there as well. When I arrested three people for the murder of that child, two of whom walked after being charged twice, they still walked because I, I, I couldn't hold the evidence that we had, uh, somebody talking to us and um, wouldn't keep doing it. But uh, I uh, went, it was all night, we were interviewing these people, these men, and uh, I had all these business cards from different journalists from different media, all the television stations, all the newspapers, the, the sun and the mirror in the day and, you know, the, 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 the papers that existed at that time. I got all their business cards out. I got my people together and I gave them a couple of cards each and I said, hit the phones now and tell all of these people that we've got this happening. So they all got an equal bite at it. I understood what their role was. Now, um, Alan, your you, storied career, goodness me, 34 years, we, we could probably sit here for a week and go through some um, you know, situations that you've been in and the impact that they've had and what have you, but there's one that's um, going back a while, but but you know, the Granville train disaster of 1977. Now, to put this into context, this was a, um, a bridge collapse from memory, 83 people killed in this accident, which makes it a, a major, major incident. I'm just going to get you to walk us through that. And, and I note here that just, just in my research that this is a train that you yourself took just to show how close to home that whole thing was. Yeah, so it was a train that I caught to work on a normal shift. And that day I wasn't on that shift. I I'd had to start earlier. And uh, we got a call that there was a bridge down on the, on the train and uh, we rushed down to that, drove down the footpath actually to get there and... Uh, uh, we just assumed that it was the footbridge when we got there. Of course, it was the road bridge, and it had just gone down onto two carriages. Realising what train it was, I was concerned. Uh, I knew my wife was dropping neighbours down to the train, to, and they caught that train often as well. And uh, I was uh, I went under the bridge, and I was concerned that I would uh, find them there. But she dropped them off early, and they'd caught an earlier train, so they weren't on it. But uh, I wouldn't have seen them anyway because the, the, the carriages were that flattened that uh, you couldn't you could see people the sides of them and whatever and so, some of the faces but you uh, you couldn't have made out who they were really you know when we look at a disaster like the the Granville train crash there it's a job where all emergency services attend you've got fireys you've got ambos and you've got the police just for the listeners can you describe what the role is for the police specifically we know the ambulance role we know the fireys are there to assist with you know moving carriages and all that type of thing what is the role of the police in those initial interactions at a scene like that? The role is historical. Um, it's um, the preservation of life and property, primarily. It's also uh, a case that um, when a person suffers death by violent or unnatural means, that the police become involved and investigate for the coroner. So there's a clear role there. And just on that, Alan, just to just to circle back around to conclude this, what what was the what was the conclusion of the coroner with result? With result, it was a, a collapsed bridge. It was was there any fault attributed to anything engineering or anything such as that, or was it just a, a terrible act of misadventure? You know, an accident, lack of maintenance on the track, lack of maintenance on the locomotive. The wheels had some wear, but the bikes that hold the rail down to the sleepers had uh, worn 
an elliptic shape around the holes that hold them that would wear with the movement it had worn them so it allowed the, the rails to spread. There was no blame attributed to the driver at all, and there shouldn't have been either, but he, he, he was t- totally innocent. He was driving the train normally in, in accordance with the rules, and as he went around a slight bend, the rail spread, the wheels came off, and the locomotive hit the staunchions that were holding the bridge up, and down it came. And uh, first two carriages got through, second and third carriages were largely crushed. The back of carriage two, I think, missed being crushed. But uh, might have been the front of carriage one, I'm not sure now, but, uh, but one and a half carriages basically were, were crushed. And in so much as a, a major disaster, as I said, 83 people killed, this was um, the likes of which probably hadn't been seen within Australia before, you know, an incidents of this nature. No, not since wartime, perhaps, but uh, but it was um, yeah the, the the old morgue at, at Sydney, which was a new morgue then, but it was the old one now. But it was uh, it was designed to accommodate victims of an airline crash, <clears throat> so it had a lot of facility there for uh, for bodies. We didn't have eighty three to start with because there were people still trying to survive, but there were quite a number. And then the normal intake, so there would have been in excess of a hundred bodies there, which is something to be confronted by, but. And then having to take loved ones around and look at each one, pull each one out on the gurney and uh, and uh, view them to see whether that was the one that they thought it might have been. But yeah, it was uh, very confronting for them. Not so much for me because I'd been through it, but not to that magnitude, you know. You were talking a little bit about informing next of kin and being involved with fatals and things such as that. It's an awful, terrible job to do. It's one that um, there's nothing enjoyable. There's nothing. It's it's an awful job, but it's one that there's an element where you need to have the capacity to switch off to it. But there's also, most would say, it's one of those jobs that if you feel that you can do it to the best of your ability, you can make what is a horrendously terrible situation for people. You might not be making it any better per se, but there's a professional element of what you've got to do in a way that you've got to do it, um, that you can sort of take something from that, yeah? Yeah, and I mean, you can you can still do your job professionally, I mean, you can still use empathy as well as you, you, you need to do. In that instance, in that, that particular disaster, uh, at least we didn't have the surprise of knocking on the door and telling people that there was an understanding that there was a possibility that their loved one would be there. So that that sort of uh, eased that part of it, but uh, it was devastating for them. And some of them who lost multiple family members. Um, I remember one chap who lost both his children and his in-laws, and I remember talking to him as he was sitting there waiting for the weight to be taken off the carriage to discover that that actuality. So yeah, nasty stuff. How long did it take to clear that scene and you know that day to day sort of hour to hour involvement with the police? How long did that whole process take? That took days and days. I can't remember the exact uh, time now, but the, uh, there was a lot of heavy machinery brought in. There was the jibs, you know, and cranes and things, and, and that had to be done carefully. There was an issue with uh, with the train carriage itself that had uh, LPG gas bottles on board, uh, which they kept for heating during winter up in the Blue Mountains. It came from came from Mount Victoria that train, uh, right up on the top of the mountain. So they needed to heat the trains that way in those days. So they started to leak. They had to have spray onto those, and uh, 
And there were issues with uh, people who were trapped but still alive and uh, once they were released, they died because of the crush syndrome that was little understood at that time. So it, it I can't remember the number of days, but it was several days before you, we got all the people out. When you go through something like that, Alan, as a, as a police officer, uh, and again, I'm asking this because you know, folks listening in, they, I think they'd probably have a genuine interest. Um, it, it, the, the impact that something like that has, how would you describe that? I, and, and I mean that in so much as that after you've gone through something like that, um, as it, it's a terrible thing to have to go through, but I guess it also steals you for for other things that you can come up against in your career moving forward because you're not going to be back in a situation like that again. It's at another level. Well, you hope you're not going to be in another situation like it, but I'd been in situations mm. before with uh, with fatalities and murders and things like that and um, mm. Uh, mm. homicides. And um, I think you, you get conditioned without being hardened, but um, once again, you're very aware. I mean, I, I, I joined the Police Cadet Corps at 17 years of age and studied for two years before I sworn in at 19, but and you, you're confronted with the ammonia, you're given a gun, a baton and, a, and a handcuffs and sent out to work. And um, every day you get confronted with something, you don't know what's going to happen. So you do get uh, conditioned and it's up to you whether you become super hardened or whether you take it each case separately as I, I, I believe I did. Because that happened, you're not going to assume that there's going to be another one tomorrow. You, you, you just get on with the things that you need to do. There's another um, situation that you're in that you've been kind enough to sort of chat to us about a little, and um, you're a, a training as a, I think, and, and, and just pull me off if I've got this wrong, I think we're going back now to the early 70s, training as a, um, a young detective. You uh, arrested a, a, an Indigenous, young Indigenous chap uh, who um, I guess later you are able to identify as a member of the Stolen Generation, and I think just, you described them as beautifully spoken, well-educated, um, again, if, pull me up if I've got this wrong. He, he was, he was taken by anthropologists in Alice Springs, taken back to Adelaide. Uh, they lived or they're connected to Scotch college there in Adelaide, I think. And, um, and he was taken back there by these, by these folks. And when they both passed away, he was sort of left alone and, and things started to fall apart. And I'm not, too au fait with the timeline, but his life and yours intersected at some point. No, twice, in fact. And right. the first, we were getting pretty well hammered in the in the um, city area of Sydney down near Circular Quay. I was stationed there and, uh, and, and in plain clothes as a trainee detective. And um, uh, I decided one day to go out in, in uh, Mufti, basically, went out and uh, just kept my eyes open with some others and uh, to see whether we could address this. We were getting dozens of cars broken into every every day. And uh, I went down and I was near Observatory Hill and I uh, saw this car drive down with a young Aboriginal man driving it. And, and I suppose your bias at that time makes you interested. So I stopped him and, and spoke to him. And he was beautifully spoken. He had a lovely, lovely voice, lovely mellifluous voice and, and, um, and very, very well spoken indeed and uh, very polite. His storyline wasn't particularly strong, particularly as I could see property in the back seat of the car. But um, anyway, I arrested him and took him back to the station and uh, he had an amazing memory. He We could go through each report of a theft from a motor vehicle and he could remember the prefix of the number plates or the numbers, either one or the other, not the whole lot. He'd remember the colour of the car, what type of car it was. Yes, I did that one. No, I didn't do that one. Yes, I did that one. I, I don't know how many I charged him with. There was dozens of them. 
I don't know whether he was given up by the family or whether he'd lost his family or whether he was stolen, as, as we say. Uh, he didn't sort of elaborate on that, but he did say that he was, and he was a, obviously a tribal Aboriginal. He was a, very much a traditional Indigenous man, a renter, I would assume. And uh, he said that his parents were uh, anthropologists. They'd taken him back to Adelaide, went to Scotch College and was well-educated. And yes, they, uh, he was between... He had a foot in two worlds, and he didn't belong to either of them. And uh, a very, very cruel thing. And 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 it happens. It happened all too much, as we know. And he uh, he was alcoholic. Uh, he lived by stealing because he didn't have any other way to live. And and he went to jail. So the, you know he's going to go to jail. You know he's going to dry out of jail. You know he's going to get out, and he's going to offend again. And, and that, that no doubt that happened. But years later, uh, after my 17 years in plain clothes and not having worn a uniform for many years, I was thrust into commission rank wearing a uniform again and feeling very strange. And I was in the city. Uh, I think I might have been in there for court. And uh, I was walking down Pitt Street. Uh, this would have been 89, 88, 89. And I was walking down Pitt Street and I saw him and I recognised him and uh, he recognised me and he said, oh, Mr. Leake, he said, I've seen you a lot on television. And I said, yes, Charlie, his name was Charlie Apmar. I said, Charlie, uh, yes, I've been on TV too much lately. It was one of the murder investigations, I think. And we were at the old congregational church in Pitt Street. So we sat down on the steps. I was in uniform. He was there. And he was sober, but he, he sat down and we had a chat. And as I was chatting to him, a man walked past and looked across and he said, lock him up, constable. And I was aghast. I mean, I've seen lots of things and I've been in lots of situations and I thought, what precipitated that comment? And I've always rem always remembered it. And uh, and he looked at me and I looked at him and I thought, you mongrel, what, what, what do you say? I didn't say anything to him, but I thought, um, I've never been offended by being called a constable, no matter what rank I was, because in effect, you were still a constable, as you know, you, you're always a constable. That's, the, that's your office, your rank's another thing. So I wasn't offended by that, but I was offended in telling me to lock him up because he was black. Not because he'd done anything, but because he was black. Um, so it stuck with me and it sort of moulded my thinking on all of that sort of thing. So. Alan, look, I just want to thank you so much uh, for taking uh, some time out of your day to, to join us here today. Alan, it's, it's always such a pleasure for me to, to sit here and chat with um, with either past or present uh, police. I mean, you're 34 years experience, and um, as 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 we said before off air, goodness, we could sit here for a week and uh, and and listen to some of the wonderful stories and 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 circumstances and situations that you've been in. Um, but look, thank you, thank you for your candor. Thanks for you know, it's it's that old school style of policing. It's it's just wonderful to hear and. Um, and also, uh, interesting to me that with all the all the work that you did and all the high profile cases that you worked on, it's um, I think there's something very honourable about um, you wanting to uh, articulate that experience with uh, with Charlie, and and that arrest and um, and those interactions and and how that is and how that has stayed with you. And it's it's often those those simple things, those simple interactions, and those people that you meet. Uh, they're the things that will often stay with you uh, longer than many of the others. Very much so. And the other thing that struck me in my career was those that had come before me, uh, particularly the men in the 40s, who were, were my experience, with, with, uh, people I worked for, my bosses and whatever, they'd been servicemen and they'd joined the police and they'd seen action in, at the front, they'd seen action in the, in the police. 
Um, and I, 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 I thought, you know, these people, we need to, we need to, to, to uh, look at these people, look at the true stories, look at the true stories of their deaths. And that's why I started to write about it. I, I wrote um, because of, I start in 1901 and I go through the police that are slain across the country. And because they served and they served as uh, in the army and in um, other services, uh, survived and was cut down in, in, in their own country, you know, and um, it's the way it is, it's sad, but uh, but they, they they trod the path for us to, to excel. And I hope that my generation did too, to, uh, to, to, to set an example for, for those that followed. Well, I've no doubt, Alan, that you've set a wonderful example for those uh, younger younger folks following through. And, 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 and I'd say, and I say with absolute sincerity, I want to thank you so much for your service and, and for your candour here today. And uh, it's always such a great pleasure to chat. And I'm sure that uh, many of those who listen in will, will, will take a lot from this discussion. And, and thanks for your time. Thanks, Brent. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.